Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Grab your dirtiest boots that you're willing to part with, because this week we are diving into Goblet of Fire, Chapter 6, The Port Key. This week's episode is also being released Thanksgiving week here in America. So happy Thanksgiving. We're thankful for y'all. No, I'm thankful mm-hmm. for Andrew. I'm thankful for all of these fun intros we have here going on. Same. <laughs> and welcome back, Andrew. Thanks. I'm thankful yeah. to not be sick tonight. So <laughs> I, I'm thankful for that as well. Let's pretend we were in the Wizarding World and turkeys didn't exist. What would be on the big platter in the center of the table instead of a turkey in the Wizarding World? I've got something. Look, I've got a dark uh, thing. Uh, this might not be a popular opinion. And, you know, we're on Thursday night recordings now, so this is slightly unhinged. But I'm going to go with owls. <laughs> There's plenty of them. Oh, my God. A big old owl for you. It what? It yeah. wasn't so much the shock of you saying owls, Micah. It was you saying there's plenty of them as if to justify. <laughs> <laughs> Are there plenty of them? Hmm. I don't know if I would say that. I do, get, I do get where you're coming from, though, right? Because there's like a turkey surplus so that they, except for the one that gets a pardon every year, there's like a, isn't that something <laughs> they tell to, is you can hunt animals that there's a surplus of. There's a good supply of turkeys this year. The price of turkeys is actually down this year. That's a fact. Wow. That's, that's true. Yeah. I would I would go with a baby hippogriff because obviously a hippogriff is going to be way too big. So like a newborn. <laughs> sounds so bad. Somebody has to kill him. So Andrew, let me ask you this. Andrew, I just want you to know Ivana Lynch is never going to come on our show again. <laughs> Forget about the Protego Foundation. Forget about all of our, these allies that we built up over these years. Asking this question is is a no-no. So, Andrew, I'm curious. Do you bow to it before you slit its throat <laughs> wow. or after? Okay, wow. Oh, my okay. God. I would not be doing this myself. I would be... You pay uh, somebody This to is do so it. grim for a wholesome Thanksgiving episode. I thought this... I had a cute one, which was going to be... Um, it's, it's still sad. <laughs> yeah. You know those... You know those little birds that can appear and disappear? The deer call? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So they're kind of short and pudgy, but I imagined that maybe one, if it got like got too big, it would be a little slow and couldn't disapparate in time. So they catch it. And that would be <laughs> the equivalent of Thanksgiving turkey. Plus, because it's bigger, it would feed a family. So I can imagine it being a deer call. Oh, man. OK, I like that. How about you, Laura? So I feel like if we're thinking about the Wizarding World in 2023 terms, I would like to think that at this point, the wizarding world has caught up with the meatless protein <laughs> phenomenon that we have here in the muggle world. This part's for Ivana and all of our vegetarian listeners. I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, Laura I'm like, single-handedly saving our allies <laughs> and our alliances. I'm like over here trying to dig us out of this hole <laughs> because I was like, oh my God, she's never going to want to come it's here again. It's a thankless again. job, but thank you. <sighs> yeah, you're welcome. But yeah, I mean... So I will say initially I was thinking dark on this one too. I was like, what about the chillin? <laughs> the chillin. Yeah. Yeah. Because <sighs> people you could just say maybe that that can kill two birds with one stone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. I like that idea too. There could be a beyond meat version of of hippogriff meat. I don't know what hippogriff meat would taste like or any of these would taste like, but there could be a a ripoff, a fake 
alternative. Maybe it's made from like dirigible plums. Like they do have a use like plum based. You know how satan. No, that's like a side that I don't want to taste. Ah, okay, okay. Well, you know what? I have another one, though. I think I have the best answer besides Laura's very obviously okay. superior meat-free. The um, Akami, uh, you know how it grows to fit the size of whatever it's in? So you'd only need one, and it could feed the whole wizarding world. You just put it in the, a big cathedral or something, and then it fills the space, and then you're like, okay, thank you. We give thanks. And then that'll be it. That is well, a beautiful one. And thank then... Eric, you just made me think of um, Gamp's Laws of Elemental Transfiguration, right? That's what it's called. And how you can, you can't create food from nothing, but you can duplicate food if you already have some. So maybe the most realistic answer here is to say, yes, we, we do have that deer call, that hippogriff, whatever, but we only have Ow. one and we just multiply it. <laughs> And give everyone one. In fact, in the Wizarding World, Thanksgiving is the most beast uh, honoring day because there's just <laughs> one beast. And they're like, this year we picked the Akami. This year we've been there like, thank you. And then they ship it around the world. Mm. Look, I, I think we saved I'm it. But I'm <laughs> thinking that, you know, look at Errol in the series. He's on his way out. <laughs> Are it's you about to say like, he's useless? Like we so. have to kill one bird. It's got to be that pathetic one. But there is an interesting point that was brought up in the Discord by Erica, who said the conversation made her realize that I don't think we ever see any wizards eating the meat of magical creatures in the books. It's always your traditional pork, chicken, beef that yeah. we all are accustomed to. That's true. At Hogwarts, they don't serve animal pro like magical animal products as food so maybe there is maybe. an agreement that those beasts are not to be hunted and eaten maybe the house elves refuse to do it oh That'd that be. would make sense too like a magical creature cannot carve up another magical creature so well, let's be real they don't have much choice in yeah. no they do not have any <laughs> choice in this is all grim and sad and not at all uh, yeah. lead him, we led with we opened with dirty boots i thought that was awesome i thought that was a peak now i'm just bummed out and we're thankful for you all let's just delete this whole section this is too sad okay and this upsetting. is going away forever no one will ever know this happened i apologize this was my idea i should have been sick again this week i think uh, i think no. it was fine. <laughs> no, oh no, we no. never say that <laughs> i'm just kidding no no no. i i think it's great all right well let's move out of this subject hope everybody who is celebrating has a nice thanksgiving because of Thanksgiving, uh, it falls on a Thursday. That is our new recording day. So we will be off next week. However, we have plenty of bonus MuggleCast installments available over on our Patreon. And in fact, after today's episode, we're going to record a new one. Right, Michael? What's on tap? Yeah. So one of the things that I thought would be fun to talk about as we're reading Goblet of Fire is that back in the day... You know, we we're all just youngins working for MuggleNet. One of the most exciting things was always learning what the new title was going to be for the upcoming book. However, there's a number of different options that were on the table for every book. Let's face it, Goblet of Fire was not the first choice for this book. So we're going to have a little bit of fun talking about what was the initial choice and some of the other options that were on the table for the fourth book. So cool. it's going to be uh it'll be a good time. Good discussion. Yeah. We'll reminisce, reminisce a bit about uh, our times uh, 
working for MuggleNet too. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash MuggleCast and you can get this bonus audio content within your favorite podcast app, including Spotify. That's a relatively recent addition. We can't do this show without your support. So thank you to everybody who supports us on Patreon or Apple Podcasts. By the way, one of our listeners who's listening live on Patreon tonight, Liza, says the Thanksgiving conversation was genuinely hilarious and she's vegan. So we got the approval of at least one vegan. (laughs) We're safe, I think. Ooh, okay. I hope you know I was like half joking. <laughs> oh, oh, and Liza also points out that Ivana said she's dating a non-vegan on the last episode of the Chick Peep. So I think we're in the clear, y'all. We can rest easy this holiday season. Yeah. Ooh, it's not make or break yeah. with the relationship. Well, let's be sure to send her a card anyway. <laughs> Yes, a card with AI art that shows a baby hippogriff on the Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner That's table. the fastest way to get canceled, actually. So a little reminder, too, we announced this last week, the MuggleCast Overstock store is now open. If you've ever wanted one of our cool physical gifts that we send to patrons, but maybe you don't support us on Patreon, we are selling leftover physical gifts from years past, including the MuggleCast beanie, that's our newest one, the Sweet 16 wood car, album art signed by the four of us, um, t-shirts, socks, and more. This is the MuggleCast and Millennial Overstock Store. That's the podcast that Laura and I do. Visit MuggleMillennial.etsy.com or you can click the link in the show notes to see the store and purchase your favorites. And once these are gone, these are gone. We are not making these again. So please check them out. Great holiday gift idea, by the way. Maybe you would like one of these on your holiday list. Here you go. Send people a link to this store. If I didn't have 50 of them burning a hole in my back porch, the MuggleCast wood car, <laughs> it's still one of the most creative gifts we've ever given. Yeah. Uh, and it's fun to assemble. I made I had fun doing the instructions and a little a video where you can watch it happen. Also, they're infinitely customizable. You can paint these things. I was actually going to say the beanie. I think that just given the time of year for, for most folks, um, are facing a little bit of colder weather. And uh, even if you're not, if you live in a warm place, the AC <laughs> gets turned up too high, throw your beanie on, wear it at night when you go to bed. It started getting colder here and I'm actually using the beanie now. And darn, that thing is comfortable. That is a cozy beanie. It really is. Don't miss out on that beanie. Now Eric's wearing it himself. Eric it is sure modeling is. it. Here we go. It's Super really warm. nice. Don't miss out. That's perfect for Christmas. I've actually gotten a lot of compliments on it, too, from oh, cool. colleagues who have seen it. I was going to recommend the socks, personally. Um, they're The knit on them is so nice, and they also have our classic iPod shadow design on them uh, from the very first t-shirt we ever came out with. So uh, those are really nice and well-made, too. MuggleMillennial.etsy.com. Don't miss out on these lovely gifts. And we'll jump into chapter by chapter in a moment. But first, this week's episode is brought to you by Masterclass. Since I've been a kid, I've always had an interest in photography. My earliest memory of this interest was taking an afternoon photography class in middle school. And our teacher would just give us the basics, take us around the schoolyard, you know, just some simple stuff. And to this day, I'm still interested in photography. And I think I... To be honest, I think I got a naturally good eye, if I do say so myself. But I've been using Masterclass to actually learn from a technical perspective how to achieve the best shots because I don't know any of that other stuff. (laughs) And I've never bothered to try. 
But Masterclass has classes in photography, and they've helped me boost my confidence and make me feel like I'm on the right track and that I'm finally doing things correctly. Masterclass is just amazing. There are over 180 classes to pick from with new classes added every month. And with our audience being readers, I want to recommend that those of you who have writing ambitions check out some incredible courses from some of the biggest authors today. Neil Gaiman, Margaret Atwood, Dan Brown, Judy Bloom, Roxanne Gay, R.L. Stein. They all teach incredible writing classes, all with different themes. Masterclass makes a meaningful gift this season for you and anyone on your list because both of you can learn from the best to become your best, from leadership to effective communication to cooking. Whether you're watching Masterclass on TV, listening in audio mode, in the app, or on their site, the quality speaks for itself. Boost your confidence and find practical takeaways you can apply to your life and at work. And if you own a business or are a team leader, use Masterclass to empower and create future-ready employees and leaders. This holiday season, give one annual membership and get one free at masterclass.com slash mugglecast. Right now, you can get two memberships for the price of one at masterclass.com slash mugglecast. Masterclass.com slash mugglecast. Offer terms apply, and we have a link in the show notes as well. So before we start, we are doing Goblet of Fire Chapter 6, The Port Key today, and we would be remiss if we did not mention that the Goblet of Fire movie was released 18 years ago this week. Wow. Wow. Oh my God. You know what that means? It's the 18th anniversary of, of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yes. This is the 18th anniversary of our first live podcast in New York Very City. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, as always, we will start this installment of chapter by chapter with our seven word summary The Quidditch World is excited regarding Voldemort. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Wow. All right. Happy Thanksgiving <laughs> once again, everybody. And uh, which one of these are we going to redo at the end of the book? <laughs> this one. Hey, there are a lot of chapters still to go. <laughs> That's true. It's only chapter six. All right. Let's get into our chapter. Um, Specifically, I want to start out this week's discussion by talking about wizarding modes of transport. We hear quite a bit about this from Arthur Weasley as he's explaining how people are getting to the Quidditch World Cup. And I think we learn a little bit more about the ways that wizards travel, right? We're familiar with brooms and the Hogwarts Express and the flu network at this point. Um, But in this chapter, we're learning a couple of other ways that magical folk get around. Uh, First of all, it is noted that 100,000 people come from around the world to the Quidditch World Cup. And I'll confess, when I read this, when I reread it, I was kind of surprised um, because when you think about international World Cup events and the crowds those draw, it's millions of people <laughs> turn up for mm. those things. But mm. then I had to remind myself, well, this is a, a significantly smaller portion of the global, global population. But it just made me wonder exactly how many magical people are there in the world. 
Uh, we don't know, but I think that <laughs> given that there were said to be about a thousand people at Hogwarts uh, 25 years ago when the author was asked. And that's considerably less like that's even less people than were just at my high school, which is four years. You know, if you wanted, there might be some math we could do there, but it's considerably less. And not only that, but the hundred thousand people that are coming are still a huge threat to breaking the statute of secrecy. And so I think on days like this, the ministry is glad there's only 100,000 people turning up. Mm -hmm. I did do some math, and it's only twice the size of Dodger Stadium. Dodger Stadium holds about 56,000. Only twice the size. You raise a, a really good point, though, Eric, because all of this needs to be done in secrecy. It's not like your traditional Olympics, let's say, where people are able just to fly in from all over the world and not have to worry about whether or not they're seen by other people. So that's a major factor in all of this. Yeah. And I mean, I think when we were reading Goblet of Fire for the first time, it may have been harder to fathom 100,000 wizards from around the world coming in because those are, you wouldn't think there were that many wizards, I don't think. But now that we're in this post- book seven world where we've learned so much more about the wizarding world these schools around the world this number is easier for me to believe yeah and i think as a kid when you're reading this that feels like a huge number and i mean it yeah. is a big number but you know relative to this kind of event it it seems pretty small from our standpoint that's that's a good put, point too because as a child when you're reading this you're like You've never been to something with a hundred thousand people, maybe not even something with a thousand people. Like right. right. Well, to Eric's point about the statute of secrecy, one of the things that the ministry does to protect itself from the risk of exposure by all of these wizarding weirdos navigating the muggle world to get to the Quidditch World Cup is by mandating staggered arrivals. So depending on the ticket you bought, how good your ticket was, how expensive it was, uh, some people had to get there really early. So if you bought cheap seats, you had to get there up to two weeks before the match even started. Is it just me or does this feel like San Diego Comic-Con all over again? Yeah. <laughs> Getting in line for see, the big Twilight see the panel. The, yeah, the Pixar panel, whatever the big panel is going to be. I would hate being there two weeks early. I guess you could see it as a nice, peaceful camping opportunity. But other than that, this sounds like hell. And it's really <laughs> crappy that the lower income people would have to get there two weeks early in order to attend the cup. That is not right or fair. I see why they need to slowly have people trick trickle in. But still, that's pretty poor. That was my main point with this is that it seems somewhat counterintuitive to the point that Andrew was raising, you'd assume that people with cheaper tickets don't, not not in every case, but most of them wouldn't have the means to put themselves up for two weeks somewhere. So forcing That's them to come point. in early is not fair. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it must come down to how a lot of things in the wizarding world come free or cheaply. Uh, we were talking earlier about duplicating food. Um, but you know, living situations are, I've never heard of wizarding world real estate being an issue. I mean, if they are on a hill camping and as long as they can conceal themselves from any muggles that would walk mm -hmm. by, 
one would think that they would be at least permitted as wizards to stay there indefinitely. Um, Who has two or, weeks to, to basically camp out for the event to start? You got to work, take you got school. Work. Yeah. yeah. That was well, my thing. I was like, what about these people's jobs? How are I they supposed argue, to go to work? We don't know enough about wizarding professions. Uh, the ministry people are probably working it, but... But they probably get a lot of vacation time because things are just better in the wizarding world. Here in America, it's like you get four days a year. In the wizarding world, it's probably like you get three months. Well, I have bad news for you, Andrew. There are countries around the world where the reality that you're describing, or excuse me, the fantasy you're describing is a reality. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know. I see a lot of (laughs) Europeans doing a lot of vacationing, and I'm like, how do I get that life? (laughs) I was going to say, Andrew, didn't you see the most recent email from HR? Our four days a year is actually going down to three because of costs. Oh, wonderful. Excellent. But um, a big thing for me, so we talked about, I completely agree it's a class issue, although I do think a lot of people who had to be here for two weeks probably aren't suffering, especially if they can like apparate in and out. Like it's unclear exactly what they're doing two weeks in advance there. It's just a matter of, again, the statute of secrecy. But I want to hear right now, is this better or worse than Ticketmaster's verified fan uh, whole (laughs) shenanigans? This is actually better. This is better because a nothing is worse than verified fan because you have no control of it. At least with getting there two weeks early, you're like, I'm in control. I am deciding I'll get there two weeks early and I'm guaranteed to get in verified fan. I keep trying to get tickets to Dell in Vegas. I keep getting rejected. Keep getting waste waitlisted. It's not my fault. I'm a real fan, but I can't get the tickets. I If I could camp out for two weeks. Maybe I would. And then I am in control. Hello? It's me camping out for two weeks to guarantee myself some tickets. It's it's so low tech, too. And it, and it just reminds me of like, God, kids these days probably wouldn't know it. <laughs> oh, great. We're officially old. I said kids these days. But Black Friday, where you used to see people uh, camping out outside Best Buy, uh, you know, the day before or overnight to be there at 7 a.m. when they opened to get one of the first 500 HD TVs when they first came out like that, that to me must have been the inspiration for what this became in the book in uh, it was published in 2000. So it must have been something akin to like, how do people deal with or maybe like the Olympics were like that, too. Maybe people were camping out. I really don't know. My mom camped out for a Nintendo Wii. Ooh. I was just thinking more so along sporting lines, right? Like when you have these major events, usually like in the case of the Quidditch World Cup, it would be the main event, but there's other things that are happening around the main event, right? So if you're there for two weeks, hopefully there's other things that you can take advantage of that you can go and do as a fan of Quidditch that you otherwise would never have the opportunity to do because this is an event that only happens, what is it, once every however many years? I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. But I would just hope there's more like fan stuff for these people to take advantage of. Well, when we think about how people are actually getting to the World Cup, though, we're introduced to a couple of concepts by Arthur. First thing he does is tell us that there are 200 of these things called port keys placed around Britain, right? These are um, inanimate objects that are unobtrusive, kind of unassuming looking, but they can actually transport you to a particular destination. 
at a specific time. Um, what I thought was so interesting about this was the, I think, British point of view we see here, where it's like, yeah, we have 200 of these placed around Britain, but we also know, Arthur says, people are coming from all around the world to do this. So it's not just British people that are that are going to be traveling by Port Key. Um, and it makes me wonder, does the British ministry have to collaborate with other countries' ministries to get port keys set up there and link them to the port keys in Britain to get people where they're going just seems like a logistical nightmare. I think that um, the other countries, especially those that are involved in sending their teams to the Quidditch World Cup, Ireland and Bulgaria, they probably have also huge swaths of the people that are coming to represent. So given that we also see a, a smattering of other international people uh, on the ground later when Harry's kind of roaming and there's that guy with the magic carpets and the, you know, all of this, it really does seem like the other governments would have to be helping the British ministry, um, just to get their own citizens to the cup and back. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also a mutual benefit, right? Like none of them want the international statute of secrecy to be breached. Yeah. Um, not, not good for anyone, no matter where you hail from. But Andrew, you had an interesting point about the Port Keys transportation timer. Yeah. This chapter is our introduction to Port Keys and Apparition. And so we're learning little details about each mode of magical transportation. And we learn in this chapter that the Port Key has a sort of transportation timer where you have to be holding it at a particular time in order for it to transport you. I do wonder if this is the best option for it to be based around a time, because it seems like, speaking of nightmares, a safety nightmare for anyone who might accidentally pick it up. And in this chapter, I guess it's maybe Arthur. He says, oh, it's just a old boot. Nobody's going to bother touching it. I feel terrible for that boot. That is insulting to that boot or any other port key that it's too ugly for somebody to even pick up to properly dispose of it in a trash can. You are so ugly. Nobody will even help clean up Earth by touching you. I really love how you personified the boot. I did not think that's where we were going with this conversation. I've seen Toy Story too many times. I I don't want to play with you anymore. (laughs) I don't want to touch you. (laughs) No, but really, let's, let's say the boot wasn't worthless and untouchable in the eyes of Arthur Weasley. This is not a safe system because some muggle could be holding it. And could be transported. Yeah. And to that point, Andrew, this is another example of muggles being characterized as not paying enough attention to pick up on anything magical. So I was thinking the same thing. I was like, what if some environmental group was out cleaning up rubbish out of the countryside and just happened to pick up this boot at the precise time that it travels? Right. Of course, they all had uh, they had a lengthy debate over who was going to dare to touch the boot. And then somebody (laughs) lost a bet. And then, yeah, that poor person is transported against their will. Trying to seek out what like the real world thing to be touched on. uh, This might be because I I do that anytime a new magical concept is introduced, like Bogarts, for instance, being like the monster under your bed. You always feared as a kid. I think of like port keys being like, um. Just this idea that they're out in the middle of the countryside where no one else is that 
if you ever had somebody going to the middle of nowhere where nobody else is, it feels weird. And you're more likely, like if you have a friend that went to the middle of nowhere to come back and hear just a wild story about how they like ended up somewhere unexpected and like barely got back. It just seems like the wildest things happen at, at like random in like derelict buildings and things. So it seems to be like kind of maybe a mention to how some of the things muggles might have encountered are actually port keys or a wizard was supposed to be using them or forgot it was left there. Oh, I kind of right. love that. It's it's reminiscent of one man's trash is another man's treasure. <laughs> right. At least the lens through which this is all being written in that, of course, a muggle would just kind of brush past a dirty old boot sitting out in the middle of the field. But I wonder if we kind of peeled it back a little bit and this might be a bit of a stretch, but do you think the port key is at all reflective of the class status of Arthur and his family? Ooh. Dirty old boot, not a lot of money. Like, I can't see the Malfoys using a dirty old boot to make their way to the Quidditch World they Cup. They would transfigure it into like a stiletto or a nicer shoe first, and yeah. then they would use it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I mean, they're probably not traveling by port key. Right. Yeah. Knowing that. True. But let not not to mention having to travel to the port key to begin with. That would be a hassle for a rich family. That was the hard part. Yeah. Getting yeah. up early, I think, also is an indication of their class, to your point, Micah. Like, even if there are other port keys that other families are taking, the 745 AM one is definitely for the poorer people. The Malfoys would be taking the private jet equivalent. They would be taking their peacocks. Remember how <laughs> Malfoy Manor has peacocks oh, yeah. strutting? Uh -huh. Which now we need AI art of Lucius and Draco and Narcissa flying on peacocks to the Quidditch World Cup. Please don't disappoint me, Micah. You know, Micah, now that you bring that up, it makes me think of the moment where they meet Amos and Cedric Diggory and Amos just kind of assumes that Harry and Hermione are also Arthur's children. And we already know, we've heard several times throughout the series that the Weasleys are just known for having a gaggle of children and people can't really keep track of how many. So I think this speaks to your point too, Micah, that, that somebody like Amos Diggory would look at Arthur and be like, oh, yes, there's... Another couple of kids must be his. That's what mm -hmm. they do. I also want to draw attention to the um, thing we've talked about before about how how rushed the author felt in writing this book. And so what if uh, Amos is lying about, and these are all yours uh, too, I suspect, Arthur, um, might be a reference to that Weasley cousin that was going to be introduced in this book and was cut and was like, maybe he'd be like, no, these aren't mine, but we have a cousin we're meeting, you know, originally or something like that. Mm, that was a really funny line too. the, no, just the redheads are mine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder if as a Weasley, you're forbidden to change the color of your hair. Like if Bill, like he has long hair, but if he had changed it from red, Molly would have flipped on him. And in a situation like the Quidditch World Cup, where there's tons of people, I bet Arthur and Molly really like that their kids have red hair because it's easy to spot them. It's like when you go to Disney World and you see a family wearing like neon green T-shirts, all the same one, so they can easily be spotted. That's what's happening here, maybe. We went to Yellowstone and my mom wore bright pink. <laughs> it was very easy to spot her. Yeah, I'm sure. This is good for the next time we all go to Universal together. Oh, that's right. We have to pick a group color. 
Mm. Let's think about it. <laughs> Before we move off of port keys, one of the things I just wanted to call attention to is that this is clearly to set up the port key that we see used at the end of Goblet of Fire. And we all know that J.K. Rowling is very good at including things in a passing mention, and that's pretty much what this is for this particular port key. And who knows? Uh, like, I don't think it was ever in my mind as Harry was participating in the third task that the Triwizard Cup was going to be a port key that took him to the Riddle Graveyard, right? Um, so it just goes to show you that we should always be paying attention to what's on the page, much like the last chapter, yeah. that dinner conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and in this chapter as well, the summoning charm is introduced. Harry ends up using that in the first task and it comes in clutch. And Molly Weasley, Mula, Molly Weasley's using it to get candies out of Fred and George's pocket. So there's just a ton of that like stuff that's going to come later in this book. Uh, things being hidden or introduced, you know, or shown for the first time here. We don't really know what it's going to amount to. I will say, though, Micah, to your point, the port keys work kind of differently. Um, in the beginning of the book versus at the end of the book, not only is the um, Triwizard Cup one presumably not timed, right? Harry's not at there at like a specific minute. Barty Crouch Jr. is not kind of checking back and forth to see Harry's progress. And as far as we know, setting the timer to go off like, you know, in the next 60 seconds and the element of it being a return cup as well. The fact that Harry's able to touch the cup with Cedric's body and take it back is very much also not something that's introduced here. So even though we're only a book apart, like within the same book, it's actually pretty inconsistent. So as a as a full introduction to port keys and how they work and all that stuff for use later, I think it actually falls short a little bit because there is some, uh, you know, kind of these things don't add up. It's inconsistent. Yeah. 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 And that could also be to the point that you were talking about earlier about the author feeling rushed in right. her writing for this book. Right. Well, we also learn um, because we hear that some people, uh, you know, obviously would prefer to apparate to the Quidditch World Cup. But we also learn that there are some um, trade-offs when it comes to apparition. It can be dangerous, um, but you also have to have a license in order to apparate. And we learn of a couple of people that Arthur is aware of who actually got fined for apparating without a license. And to literally add insult to injury, um, they splinched themselves, meaning that they did not apparate successfully and they left part of themselves behind. Do you think they made the noise that Voldemort makes in Deathly Hallows Part 2? <laughs> Those are so fun to make, by the way. I had a ball Those doing are, that you're with really you good at them. a few weeks ago, Laura. <laughs> yeah. So anyone can have, anyone can operate even if you don't have a license. That's what we're gathering from here, right? Well, right. I think it's technically, you're, you can be capable of doing the magic, but... You really the, shouldn't unless you have the license. Yeah, as as evidenced by the fact that these guys splinched themselves. Um, you know, if you aren't going through the licensing process, then you're not getting the most up-to-date, helpful education on it. And so, 
you try and teach yourself how to like, you know, I'm self-taught and then you go and splint yourself. It's like, well, you should have just done the licensing course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like how somebody can know how to drive, but not have a driver's license. Mm hmm. It is exciting to see the Wizarding World put a lot of um, systems in place, or just one system in place for something that they're doing that's unsafe. <laughs> like, that's that's new. That's exciting. You have to license for apparition. That's cool. Yeah. So we do have this connecting the threads moment here when Arthur is talking about these two gentlemen getting splinched, because we actually know that later on in Deathly Hallows, Ron goes on to get splinched when he, Harry, and Hermione are disapparating to get away to get to the Forest of Dean. Again, it works a little differently. So Ron mm-hmm. needs Dittany so he doesn't bleed to death. In this case, Arthur seems to be talking about the people being not at risk of bleeding to death necessarily. He says like half of them was somewhere else, but it seems to be that maybe they're magically protected. Like if you just open a portal and half of you goes through that the other half is like it seemed like they were still intact they just weren't physically in the same row like i don't know it seems less grim when arthur's talking about it here than what happened with ron which was very serious business yeah and it could be that he was trying to spare the kids the gruesome details you know also i i just always think about how nonchalant wizards are when they're talking about pretty horrific stuff happening like Dudley's tongue swelling up inside of his mouth for example and fred and george are just like ah He'll be fine. It's easy enough to fix. Mm -hmm. And you hear Arthur talking about this, making kind of light of the fact that these two people got splinched. And you're like, oh, I see where the twins get it from, to be honest. But there are a lot of people, you know, we just talked about port keys, who take port keys because they either can't or don't want to apparate um, because of the risks that come with it. but. It made me wonder why, because presumably Arthur can apparate. We see him apparate at other times, right? So why couldn't he have just used side-along apparition and made a few trips so that everybody could sleep in? They wake up, these kids wake up before the sun's even up and they start walking. It's so unfair. <laughs> it's and the- awful. And they're kids, though, going to a very special event. Yeah. They got to earn it. I, I think it's okay. <sighs> I, that that part doesn't bother me. I, I do like your question, though. Like, why wouldn't Arthur even consider side-along apparition? I think it wasn't invented yet. Yeah. Yeah. Because because the other thing, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but the other thing that leads me to believe it wasn't invented yet is the sheer inconsistency. If you read this chapter of the book and ask yourself, in what year of the Wizarding World does a Hogwarts student learn to apparate? It's wildly different because Percy only just passed, but Percy's out of Hogwarts. He passed year seven last year. Fred and George are going for their test next year, but they're in the fifth year this year. So they, why should it be next year that they wait for the, unless it's like the, the year turns thing. So it, I just think between all of the people we l- hear about learning about apparating, it's not their fifth year in which they're doing it. And so the fact that we know that Harry has the instructor at the end of was, isn't it book five or is it, is it book six? I think it's book six. And I think the twins are actually sixth years in this, not fifth years. So they're two years Mm. ahead of Harry. Yeah. Cause they were third years when Harry started. Mm. But so for Percy to have just passed two weeks ago, though, 
He has already graduated Hogwarts, though, right? Yeah. So he learned after his seventh yeah, year. Yeah, but it... Maybe he failed it's also, the first time he took it. Yeah. And what is Cedric? Is He is he is the Cedric, seventh year now, Cedric correct? is described as just turning 17 or being about 17, so we assume seventh year. Yeah, because yeah. it's mentioned And we know you have to be Amos. of age. Right. Amos mentions that he hasn't passed his apparition test yet either. So yes. And seventh so Cedric, year seems right. Yeah, so then Cedric would have passed it at the end of his previous year. Um, so yeah, I just think that that everything to do with apparition is still very new uh, at the time this was written. Um, it's fun to actually pick out these little elements and be like, Oh, that actually doesn't line up with what happens to Harry later. Mm-hmm. Anyone who had turned 17 by the day of the exam could take the exam. And if they passed, they received a license. Yeah. So that's why Hermione gets her license before. Well, I don't even know if we ever we don't see Harry and Ron get theirs. They don't. Only Hermione. Look, man, it's all about the journey. It's not about the destination. It's the journey. <laughs> Arthur wanted to give him a memorable experience, a nice hike to the boot. <laughs> So they'd, they'd never forget the way they entered the Quidditch World Cup. <laughs> it's honestly, though, it's a good educational experience. Also very reminiscent. I'm sure we've all been in the situation where maybe we're taking a big trip and we had to get up super early. Oh, yeah. And it could even be going, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. It could even be, oh, we got to get up. We got to get on that car and drive for hours to get to whomever's house that we're going to celebrate at. Right. You know, it, it's... It's kind of like that. Amos got up really early, 2 a.m., he said, I believe, right? Yeah, that's Um. right. And they walked, too. That's the crazy thing to me. (laughs) Cedric and his dad walked since, like, 2 in the morning. And we know that it is at least late enough that Harry is starting to see a faint tinge of green light on the horizon where the sun's rising. So Cedric and Amos walked for, like, five hours (laughs) to get here. (laughs) They're real it's outdoorsy just... types. They're hard workers. Apparently. True. Right. And and this is a once every four year event, mm-hmm. presumably, mm-hmm. but their country is hosting it. So it's exciting. Yeah, they don't have a team that's really in it that they're cheering for, but you know, there's there's an excitement about it. Agreed. Well, we were just talking about people failing their apparition tests, people not having um, their license as soon as we might expect um, based on their age or based on their year at Hogwarts. Um, but it seems like failing your apparition test the first time might be fairly common. We learned that Charlie failed his test the first time. Uh, we know that Ron is going to fail his in a couple books time. Um, of course, we just chatted about Percy, but we get this great description of him apparating from his bedroom downstairs every single morning just because he can. Obnoxious. And, okay, so here's the thing. I'm actually going to defend it, and I'm y'all know that I'm not really a big Percy fan, but this to me feels like classic teenage behavior. It reminds me of getting your driver's license and how you would make excuses or even just go out to do the smallest thing just so that you could get behind the wheel of the car and 100%, drive 100%. just because you could. A hundred percent. But what he's doing is going downstairs in the same house. 
if we follow your line of thinking here, it's like if I just got my driver's license and I pulled my car out of the garage just to drive to the house next door, 10 feet away. Yeah. That's what's happening with Percy. Oh, no. So the I carbon, still think it's obnoxious. The yeah. carbon footprint is, alone is 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 devastating. <laughs> but I think this is their their closest equivalent to the experience of being newly licensed to drive a car. And excited about it. Yeah, your yeah. independence, it's your freedom. It's too small of a distance, in my opinion. <laughs> if he was going to a neighbor's or something or maybe down the street, okay, but I'll, I'll defend Percy slightly as well because oh. I do recall... The twins do much of the same in the next book. Yep. And there's not as much. I mean, I think it annoys Molly from what I remember, but it's not cast in necessarily the same light as Percy doing it. So it just goes to show you that there is favoritism shown towards the twins versus being shown to Percy. And in this case, they're doing the exact same thing. I will also add, Mm -hmm. based on last week, I talked about sort of Percy's home life being a, you know, a complete mess that he resides at the ministry because he's escaping home. He's probably apparating downstairs to grab his toast for breakfast from his bedroom and then apparating (laughs) back up to his bedroom. Because if he doesn't, if he tries to take the stairs, you all know what I'm saying. I see it in all of your faces. His siblings are going to trip him or taunt him or prevent him or block his path. Or there's going to be another toffee in the way or something. Everyone's <laughs> turned the crosshairs on to Percy. And so maybe he's just trying to leave as little of a footprint as possible. Yeah. Or just trying to avoid people in general. Right. Yeah. It, we can tell that he's not really um, his family's number one fan at this phase in the series. True, though, as much as I defended him, I will say I'm sure there's a part of him that thoroughly enjoys being able to do this in front of Fred and George. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. A hundred percent. Well, Andrew, you had a, a transportation question. Which would we prefer if we had to pick one? Portkey or apparition? Who'd you rather? Portkey apparition? <laughs> no, I think going back to last week. I like the portkey from the idea of like it's kind of exciting to center your transportation plans around a particular object in time. I think actually I was kind of joking about the journey earlier, but I think that is part of the experience, especially when it comes to the Quidditch World Cup. Apparition, there's some risk to it, whether or not you have your license. I'd rather take the safer route, I think, so long as I don't have to get up at 2 a.m. to get to my port key, you know, five hours away. Yeah, the apparition seems to have way too many uh, random uh, variables that could go wrong. Uh, So I'm not choosing that anytime soon. So that's two for the port key. I'm going to say apparition personally. Um I get motion sickness, and the way the port key is described sounds awful to me. So I would just practice and make sure I'm really, really good before I try to operate <laughs> any kind of mm-hmm. significant distance. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering if this is a, a Ravenclaw trait on some level, because I feel like ultimately I'd go with apparition as well. I just think it's something to your point, Laura, you'd have to make sure that you practice enough that you're doing it safely. And uh, though, like that said, we see Newt and Jacob, 
use portkey in Fantastic Beasts. And they're obviously fully grown. And certainly Newt could take Jacob through side-along apparition. We see him actually, don't, don't they do that? Or does he go with Dumbledore? Well, it's it's a, I forget. They're, they're, they have to cross the English Channel. And that's the other aspect of this. Because even if you're an accomplished wizard, the distance makes it worse. It's harder to mm. do it. That's why Newt takes a ferry liner to get to New York. Uh, in the, at the beginning of the first movie, he can't, it's, it's your risk goes up exponentially based on distance. Yeah. It's why, uh, Lita is on the Titanic in the second movie. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, speaking of steam liners, we know that some wizards just take modes of muggle transport. Um, The ministry somehow has to stagger this and kind of put a cap on how many are doing it so they don't draw too much attention to themselves. But I have to say, it's kind of hard for me to imagine this being completely discreet. Mm. Think of all the times we've seen wizards trying to dress like muggles and utterly failing. (laughs) I'm also thinking of how rowdy sports fans get when... There are large sporting events like this going on. No hate towards them. They're just really, really excited. You can tell when there's a train full of people coming or going to a game, you know? So I just wonder how much of a mess the ministry gets to clean up after an event like this. And we know they're obviously going to have a really big mess to clean up after this one. But in general... I just wonder how much damage control they have to do after a large event. Yeah, for sure. I I think too, like the event may be over, but their job is just beginning, you know, for like sanitation crew, cleanup Mm -hmm. crew, all that kind of a thing. Although it is funny to actually, I know we led with sort of the statute of secrecy must be preserved, but I wonder these days in like 2023, how much with conventions being a thing that we're all familiar with cosplay you know, I, I basically learn about half the conventions that are in Chicago because I see people dressed up wildly on public transit. So I wonder if it's as severe now and these days in culture, like whether the cup is in a major metropolitan area and people would be like, oh, there's clearly something weird going on and they mind their own. Comic-Con London is happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then even going back in time, you know, probably to like early 2000 when this was written, that just wild stuff again happens in the middle of nowhere. So maybe a muggle that lives in the middle of woods on their private property, you know, with their 50 acres, uh, they see something weird happening, but that's just like Wednesday afternoon for them. So maybe it isn't as dire as we think. I really like this point, actually, about conventions. I was going to say maybe the ministry gives uh, their constituents very clear guidelines about what to and what not to wear. Mm. crystal clear so there's no doubt because yeah laura i don't trust wizards you know making up their own mind in terms of what it's like to dress like a muggle but now i'm being swayed by eric because i do think like to his point you start seeing people dressed differently than you you're like oh there's must be a convention nearby yeah i mean i would say this is like par for the course in new york city like yeah. You'd see somebody and you wouldn't even think twice. Like they could easily be a witch or a wizard. Uh-huh. You, would, you wouldn't even bat an eyelash because of all the crazy things that we see here. But uh, when you were talking earlier, Laura, though, about the whole muggle dress code, you know, even Arthur, who works in the field, 
of muggles still doesn't seem to be able to dress himself <laughs> to be able to pass as your sort of like average person um like if it, it drew up um the moment it's in the, the order of the phoenix movie with mark williams where he's like doing like the moonwalk through the turnstile for the <laughs> underground because he's not really sure how it works <laughs> like i think you'd probably get a lot of that going on for, for yeah. sure i feel like arthur knows just enough about muggles to be dangerous like for somebody who has the job he has he is shockingly out of touch with how muggles work he's got the i don't know how you where's this unfounded accusation coming for brim he has a shirt pants and a belt he is succeeding as far as i'm concerned he's the only wizard we ever see who's an adult that actually succeeds in in dressing like a muggle convincingly yeah so he has this one down i think for this particular event, I'm but so proud of him. We see all. Uh, it's like, yeah, I guess I am proud of him. But I mean, we think about you know Ron not knowing how to use a telephone, <laughs> for example. That's true. Yeah, and um, I want to know why Arthur doesn't have more pull working for the ministry. Why can't he get there later? Because everybody works for the ministry. Everybody though, yeah. I mean, basically, like his 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 department is. So this is like, yeah, this is like the holiday party. <laughs> this is basically <laughs> your your yearly. Yes, I think because Haven't we also touched yeah. on how his job is probably not respected within the ministry. Haven't we? Yet? So yeah. that's probably another reason why he doesn't yeah. have much pull. Yeah, for sure. Well. Uh, keeping it moving, we're going to move on to the next part of this discussion, which I've titled, Sorry, Parents, You Are Completely Cringe to Your Teenage <laughs> Children. And we already touched on a couple of these points about why are you forcing these kids on this march <laughs> to the port key? Um, why couldn't you know anybody have used sidelong apparition to make this just an easier experience all around. But I want to focus on Fred and George for a moment, because before everyone leaves the borough to go to the boot, uh, Fred and George are caught trying to sneak more of their deadly toffees to the World Cup. Um, but their attempt is ultimately squashed by Mrs. Weasley, and she accios every last toffee away from them. And I'm wondering who were the twins planning on passing these out to? Can you imagine how disruptive this would have been? Yeah. I also just love that Molly was going, Accio, Accio, Accio. Like she had to do each one individually. <laughs> that, that, that's, it's too bad. There's not a wider Accio. I guess if they were all in a bag, that would have helped. Yeah. But to answer your question, maybe they were going to take a strategy similar to what they did with Dudley, just kind of like toss them on the ground and see who picks one's up, picks one up and tries to put it in their mouth the only benefit with them trying this again is that the people who are suffering from this horrible affliction uh would be surrounded by wizards um there might actually be an abundance of people trying to help that all have different ideas for how to do it and that would be potentially awful but yeah a, a crowded space a public space the only thing that excuses this for my mind is that i think fred and george really just needed to get them out of the house because they were afraid that exactly what happened was going to happen, that Molly was going to confiscate them. Maybe they really weren't planning on actually having people use them, but maybe like Lee Jordan or somebody could be able to like hold on to them safely until they get to Hogwarts. Maybe. 
I feel like um, this kind of reminds me of the concept of teenagers or young people in general smuggling certain substances, certain contraband that they're not supposed to have to an event like a concert or a conference or a dance or something. Yeah, I guess we don't really know the guidelines here, but presumably there is a long list of things that are banned from the Quidditch World Cup. Or maybe not, because as I've brought up before, anything goes all over the Wizarding World. Nothing matters. Right. If you think Hogwarts is a security nightmare, then... (laughs) Step outside of Dumbledore and you'll see just how much crazier it can get. You think I'm bad? Just go to that cup. (laughs) (laughs) He was probably wearing a Death Eater mask. (laughs) Well, uh, speaking of cringy parents, let's talk about Amos Diggory. Um, I had forgotten how insufferable this man is. And I will say it hurts to read it because you can tell this man is living vicariously through his son, who in like nine months time, he's going to lose. Um, and and that really does hurt. But you think about some of the things that Amos says to Harry. Where he's like, you're Harry Potter. Oh, man. Cedric is going to be able to tell his grandchildren that he beat you at Quidditch. (laughs) He's the better flyer because he didn't fall off his broom. I felt so much secondhand embarrassment for Cedric reading this. That's the greatest thing about this, though, is that Cedric is actually embarrassed. Fred and George are fuming. Yeah. They hate being reminded of Hufflepuff's victory uh, in that one game. But it's clear that Amos just doesn't know the full story or if he does know it. Because I think Cedric might have corrected him at one point. He, he doesn't tries to care. tell him, yeah. He did, yeah. yeah. I take your point, but Amos is a proud father. He beat the Chosen One. There's nothing better than that. That is something to brag about. Is it right to yeah, brag yeah. in front of Harry? No, no, I guess that's cringe. But Amos is probably is obviously starstruck, so he's not thinking clearly right now. So I'll stick up for my, my boy. I'm with <laughs> you, though. <laughs> nice boy. play on words there, Andrew. <laughs> Uh, I'm with you though, Laura. I, I, and, and it's just, I think a product of watching the movies too much and Jeff Rawl, who played Amos Diggory, like he's very much a friendly character to Harry. He's never this version of Amos towards Harry. And so to see him behave this way, I, I completely forgot that this was the type of person that he is. It's it's so reminiscent of actual parents, though, that are like very cringe um, to your point, Laura, like th- just the idea like they go into it. Then he goes into, oh, well, I'm sure even Harry would admit if one man falls off his broom and the other one doesn't, yeah. then the other one's the better <laughs> athlete. And it's like, oh, my God, stop. We all know somebody like that, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And I just want to point out here, uh, we have to we can't forget that. During that Quidditch match in Prisoner of Azkaban, Cedric actually wanted to replay the match. He wanted a rematch because he didn't think that it was fair because Harry had fallen off his broom and it wasn't Harry's fault. So Cedric is actually, at least in this regard, when it comes to his humility and his self-awareness, he is the polar opposite of his father. Like, Amos is giving, like stage mother in this <laughs> yes. like very good or, uh, what is it with toddlers and tiaras where they're like yeah, uh, yeah. like beauty pageant mom beauty, beauty, yeah 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 pageant moms um 
He is. I will say that kind of unique to Cedric too, unlike Victor Crumb and Fleur Delacour, we actually, I think, see enough evidence in previous books and the whole series to understand why the Triwizard Cup picks Cedric as the champion for Hogwarts. I think that we, or at least we see his Hufflepuff side, um, his unwillingness to accept the glory for himself. And he he's not the one gloating. Imagine what a different character he would be if he came up to Harry and said, hey, Harry, remember when I beat you, uh, you know, at Quidditch? That would be a way different character, but he would never. And I have this note here. We're getting really dark on this episode between the beginning and the end of the chapter here. But reflecting on Amos telling Cedric, this will be something you tell your grandchildren. And I was just thinking as I planned this episode, like the narrator coming on and being like, Cedric would have no grandchildren. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Cedric. Maybe they can do that in the TV show. Cut to a narrator. And it can be you, Laura. Oh, Oh, maybe they can get Helen Mirren to be the narrator of the Harry Potter TV show. That'd be fun. That that. would be so good. The connection is there. (laughs) All right. We're going to get into a couple of odds and ends here. Uh, The Lovegoods are name dropped at the beginning-ish of this chapter uh, as having already arrived at the World Cup a couple of weeks ago. Um, Arthur mentions this. And this is where we get the first connection to Luna living so close to the Weasleys, even though we don't know her character yet. But it makes me wonder, did Luna and Xenophilius end up having to get the cheap tickets Arthur was talking about? The newspaper world is a tough business. There's no money in it. Yeah. (laughs) Print does not sell. Yeah. (laughs) They're, you know, they're dancing around the forest, so they're fine. (laughs) You know, they're holding Woodstock. I was going to say to them, I bet they cho- would have chosen to come early for all the people watching and, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. I, I just imagine Luna's summers being filled with nonstop enjoyment, no matter what form that takes. Agreed. Uh, I also just wanted to mention that Mrs. Weasley calls the twins out for not getting more owls, O-W-L-S, again. Uh, she just did this. Uh, around their first incident with the cursed toffees. And here she says it to them again, because they mention, hey, it took us like six months to make those, and you just trashed them. And she said, well, it's no wonder you didn't do better on your exams, when the reality is, in a lot of ways, you could say they demonstrated a much higher level of intellect by being able to develop these then is necessarily reflected by doing well on an exam. I think the interesting thing about this for me is that Molly brings it up almost to defend Charlie, uh, because Mm -hmm. I think it's the twins that are like, Charlie failed his apparition test twice. She's defending what who could be her favorite child. All right. And we will go ahead then and get into MVP of the week. And I'm going to give it to the boot portkey. And listen, boot, you are bootiful and worthy of being touched by a muggle. You, you are. are more than untouchable trash to a muggle like me. I would pick you up and put you where you belong. You are my MVB of the week. Oh, MVB. 
I'm going to give mine to Amos for reasons we've already said. He gets to gloat about his boy and it won't last long, but good for him. Well, I'm going to give it to his boy. I'm going to give it to Cedric <laughs> for his <laughs> for his self-awareness and his humility in the face of his father kind of uh, bullying a 14-year-old boy. <laughs> Loki. <laughs> You know, I'm going to give it to Eric or I'm going to give agree with Eric and give it to Amos because, you know, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, he served up some humble pie to Harry. (laughs) (laughs) If you have any feedback about today's discussion, you can contact us by emailing or sending a voice memo recorded on your phone to mugglecast.gmail.com. Or you can use our old school phone number, which is 19203Muggle. That's 19203684453. And now it's time for some of our Harry Potter trivia game quizage. Last week's question According to Amos Diggory, what family couldn't get tickets to the Quidditch World Cup? And the correct answer was. The Fawcetts, whoever they are, I feel bad for them. Micah, please do us the honor of reading last week's winners who got the correct answer. Thanks, Eric. So correct answers were submitted by All Hail Andrew, the King of Panera Bread. Interesting. I do love Panera. I don't know who knows that about me, but thank you. Amos, (laughs) more like Lamos, Cedric and his idiot father for jeering at Harry the Almighty. Crystal Blue, Daniel Radcliffe's abandoned green contact lenses. David <laughs> Heyman, you sexy, fantastic beast. True. DF versus Omega Mart, Red Triple Trio, part 20. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm losing my voice now. Elizabeth K, famous Amos, don't eat his cookies. German trains make me dream of Hogwarts Express, Hagrid's soggy pillow, Hollow Wolf. I answered a Harry Potter trivia question correctly and then proceeded to get a lot of other trivia questions wrong. Justice for Winky, keep your galleons in the bag, men. LC, Luna's Quidditch Week long pregame show featuring her nargles. Yes. Molly Wobbles. <laughs> Muggle Muggle, Toil and Trouble, Toffees Go and Cauldrons Don't Bubble. My Favorite Beast is a Shiny Shiny Niffler, Ron's Emotional Range, and the reason Crookshanks has a squashed face is because... Is There's it- so much animal <laughs> cruelty in this episode. I know. The reason Crookshanks has a squashed face is because Ron hit it with a frying pan. Wow. Cannot confirm. The- now, here's the question, Eric. Yeah. Which one is my submission? Were you keep your galleons in the bag, men? I'm going to give it to David Heyman, you sexy, fantastic beast. I would vote that one, too. And what was it, Micah? What was it? Well, no, I, I don't have to give it away if it's not All properly. Right. All right. He sneaks. He sneaks by again. All right. All right well, <laughs> he sneaks by. <laughs> that reminds me of Famous that old- Amos, don't eat his cookies. Oh, okay, okay. That old uh, that old um, onion headline, which is a ninja parade goes through town unnoticed again. <laughs> Here is the next quizits question. According to Percy, about how many languages does Mister Crouch speak? Submit your answer to us on the quizits form located on the MuggleCast.com website. Go to MuggleCast.com. 
click on Quizich or go to mugglecast.com slash Quizich in your search bar. Also on that site, you'll find our transcripts, our social media links, our full episode archive, our favorite episodes, and our contact form. Don't forget, too, that the MuggleCast and Millennial Overstock store is now open. So visit MuggleMillennial.etsy.com to get one-of-a-kind MuggleCast gifts while supplies last. These are great for the holidays. So if you need something for your wish list or you need something for the uh, MuggleCast fan in your life, check it out. If you enjoy the show and think other Muggles would, too, tell that Muggle about the show. We would also appreciate if you left us a review in your favorite podcast app. And last but definitely not least, visit Patreon.com if you want to support the show and receive early access to the show, ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, yearly physical gifts, and much more. If you're an Apple Podcast subscriber, you can tap into the show and receive early and ad-free access to each episode for $2.99 a month. We're going to have some updates there in the new year, by the way, concerning the Apple Podcast subscription. More to come. Whether pledging through Patreon or Apple Podcasts, free trials and annual subscriptions are available. So that does it for this week's Thanksgiving-themed episode, I guess, of MuggleCast. Good luck roasting your baby hippogriffs and hope it goes well. (laughs) And I apologize. Stuffing your owls. Forever sorry, I'm Andrew. Uh, Eternally (laughs) also sorry, I'm Eric. Forever thankful, I'm Micah. Aw, that's cute. Sorry, not sorry. I'm Laura. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.